Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and comes right to your door four times a year, and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including Mr. Wampler and Mr. Vespi from time to time. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, and you damn well should, you will need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. KingCast listeners are in the family, so I have a nifty promo code for all our cousins and distant relations. Y'all can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code KingCast at checkout. Uh, Now with all of that said, let's get on with the show. (laughs) Hi. My name is Stephen King. He's gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Guys, we're gonna go see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have a very interesting episode on deck for you this week, folks. Uh, one tackling a King title that heretofore we have only covered once over mm. the entire lifetime of this show. Today's guests are the screenwriters of the original A Quiet Place and the forthcoming Stephen King adaptation, The Boogeyman, which we've been hearing quite a few good things about lately, haven't we, Eric? Uh, one or two. Yes. As <laughs> well as the writers, directors behind Nightlight, Haunt, and this week's prehistoric action thriller 65 starring the great adam driver they're here today to talk to us about what else uh on writing stephen king's 2000 memoir on the craft ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the king cast stage mr scott beck and brian woods gentlemen how are you doing today uh doing great thanks so much for having us Thank on the show you guys. So, oh no we're, we're very excited to have you here i'm excited yeah. for 65 i'm excited for the boogeyman yeah uh, which uh, given that you handled screenwriting duties on both uh which one should i be more excited for Ooh. <laughs> Pick your child oh man i'm not I, gonna sophie's ask. choice i'll be excited right for 65 and, and uh, i'll be excited for boogeyman that's what you get oh, with two of us. <laughs> look at that that's such Damn, a great I should have seen that coming. political answer wow mm-hmm. you evaded the tough question how <laughs> um well, I, I must say that we're uh, Dave Dasmulchin's a friend of the show uh, and a friend of mine in real life, and uh, he has been saying nothing but good things since uh, since he signed up for Boogeyman. And then I've been hearing through other people just ha- how damn good the movies turned out. So I am I am very excited for that. I, I have only seen the trailer for sixty five, but I'm already sold. You had me sold when it was Adam Driver versus dinosaurs. So, <laughs> so there, there was there is nothing else to be said on that front. So. Uh, what I'm saying is you guys uh, have avoided the pitfalls and have made me excited for both of your movies. Uh, thank, thank you. you so thank you so much. much. And, and David is terrific in The Boogeyman. I can't wait for you guys to see him. You really crushed Who is him. David playing in The Boogeyman? Oh, well, I guess it's not a spoiler I, at this I don't, point. We can I say, don't know. Can is it? I, I mean, we could we could use this platform. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, anyone familiar with the uh, The Boogeyman short story from Night Shift knows it it kind of centers around this um this character named lester billings who claims that the boogeyman 
uh, killed his three children. Uh, mm. David is playing Lester Billings, and mm. we could not have ever anticipated no shit. a better way to cast uh, that role than with David. He's just uh, such an incredible performer. He's a chameleon in every single performance that he gives. So uh, the, the day that we found out he was taking the mantle, we were like, great, our, our any job here that we had is completely done. He can he can take it from there. <laughs> Um, I want to focus on 65 mostly during this upfront chat because that's the movie that's coming out first, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I do have one one little question for you about the uh, the Boogeyman because I, I don't know if we'll get you back for the release of that movie. Um, the story is very slight, you know, to put it mildly. Um, it's only, however, what, 10 pages long, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how challenging was it to flesh out this entire thing? Or did you read it and the whole thing, however you've expanded it? And I, I haven't seen it yet, so I have no oh, idea. Sure. Um, you know, uh, did it just come to you naturally? It did not come naturally. It's it's The Boogeyman's long been one of our favorite pieces of writing from Stephen King because it's so um, claustrophobic and it's so eerie and just the opening of it is so like when Lester says I've murdered my three children, it's just such a, it just gets your imagination going. Mm -hmm. And so for many years, we've kind of had our agents and reps constantly check in on the rights because we wanted to attempt to adapt it, but really had no idea how to do it because you're right. It's a contained piece. And, um, over the years, we finally just kind of figured out a way in and a way to to use the the story organically, hopefully for a lot to tell a larger story, but also mm-hmm. the work that is um, that terrific short. And so it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't an instant eureka process. It was something that we just kept circling and circling and we would, we would option the rights and be like, all right, we think we have a take. And then we weren't really sure. And they'd lapse again and and we'd go off and do something else. And then we'd come back. All right, now we think we have it. So we, it was a lot of um, trying stuff. But I think ultimately, you know, the, the fear that we always had was you, you write a feature length version of that story and will it hit like the sweet spot to, you know, carry on the voice of, of Stephen King. And so I think the day that we inevitably had to deliver that draft uh, with with sweat pouring down our foreheads to Stephen King. And he um, he came back. Uh, I forget if it was like a week or two weeks and, and got the thumbs up. That was a huge sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. But I think that was the biggest hurdle that we always were kind of facing is that you could easily face plant, um, you know, by trying to sure. expand a short and still maintain, you know, the essence of what what Stephen King really stands for. Right. We've had uh, I mean, we had King himself on the show and we I kind of asked him during that run, like, what is the like in his mind, the secret to a good adaptation of his work and like his initial, his, his like instinctual response was, you know, the ones that tend to be the best are the ones that are the shorter stories. It's either mm. like the standby me's and whatnot, their novellas, the mist or whatever his favorites tend to Shawshank, you know, his ten- favorites tend to be the ones that are, that are from the short form first. And I think for what the very reasons you were, you know, we've been kind of talking about here is he was saying that kind of gives the filmmakers freedom to expand. Um, so in his mind, uh, yeah. you're like you already on, had one foot in the, the right side <laughs> of things trying to do the, <laughs> a, an adaptation that way. But I can't imagine we've talked to so many people, uh, now that have adapted King's work and, you know, they all talk about that moment where, you know, uh, I think Vincenzo Natale and Mike Flanagan, they both had that moment where they had to send off the, 
the script to King and, and get there. Okay. And Flanagan, like his story is even more like <laughs> dread inducing when, when uh, he had set it up by saying, listen, my adaptation of Dr. Sleep is going to be acknowledging the Kubrick movie. And King was like, I don't like that. Right. And, uh, and he's like, well, read the script and tell me what you think. And uh, like, I don't know. I just can't imagine being in that position. Like it, it blows me. It blew me away when King said he'd listened to an episode of the show. You know, oh, like I can't um, imagine submitting literal writing to, to Stephen King, oh, man. and, uh, no. and be not terrified. just wanting to fucking hang yourself from the 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 attic rafter. You know, it's it's terrifying, but it's also like we took comfort in just knowing that just as fans of King, he loves movies. Like I, I that yeah. might even be a, a a quote in the book we're talking about today, yeah. where he says like even like the worst movie I ever saw was still, you know, a great time at the movies. And mm-hmm. um, so we took comfort in, in knowing that you can tell, you can see it, you can feel his love of in all of his adaptations, the, the yeah. love of cinema. I've seen some of the, <laughs> the stinkers that, that he's uh, praised in entertainment weekly. So yeah, you can tell his, his love of love of film is, uh, is authentic and genuine. And, you know, if you've ever read dance macabre, like that's, you yeah. know, that's his love letter to, you know, growing up a genre movie. So absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so, a, actually dance macabre is an interesting counter piece, like the other side of the coin, the on writing. And that's a title we still haven't uh, done on the show. So we need to get that done. I want I want to do a dance. Macabre oh, well, episode. well, maybe if you're if we're ever lucky enough to come back, that could be a, a part two, because we're ah. about two thirds of the way through that book. Haven't finished Ooh. yet. But picked it up recently. I've never Man, that, read that, it. that was a pretty cornerstone book for me when I was a kid. So this I, I would be very excited. I haven't revisited it since I was in like middle school, though. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to reread it. Let's uh, let's go ahead and say for sure you're coming back for Boogeyman. And yeah, uh, we'll do it. Yeah. And we'll do dance macabre. Assuming that. this episode goes great. If you guys fuck this up, I swear to God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have I ever but, told you about my love of QAnon? Uh, <laughs> you said a lot of things right, actually. Yeah. Oh, well, time's up. Thank you so much for coming over. So the but what, what you've got coming out now, what you're here to promote is yes. 65 with the, the great Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a powerhouse of an actor right now. Um, this is the story of an astronaut who what does he do does he travel through a wormhole how does he well i guess we'll leave that for the movie we haven't seen it yet we're recording this in like early (laughs) february um but he he winds up on prehistoric earth 65 million years ago and is now forced to survive and and find a way off the planet great pitch or great log line on this by the way the, my number one thing that I, I'm curious to ask about is, was there ever the thought that you would not reveal it was Earth in the marketing mm. and leave the title to be like discovered in the yeah. theater? I mean, absolutely. I, I think first and foremost, Brian and I are the type of um, moviegoers that absolutely adore when you're teased enough that you yeah. don't need anything more other than the sense of intrigue. And so... Very much how how we kind of um, you know wrote the script and and pitched the movie when we we went into studios was very much uh, uh, an essence of mystery. Meaning you know it's about uh, this this pilot that's you know has cargo. He crash lands on a mysterious planet, and we even told like when we were pitching this, we're like this is a movie that you've seen like a million times before. But then when you reveal in the pitch um, or in the script that he crash lands on earth like that to us was kind of like where you don't give that away in the marketing. So that definitely was at the <laughs> forefront of our mind, but we're at a, we're in an interesting point in 
theatrical history, right? Like not only did we all kind of collectively go through this, suffer through this pandemic and it really hurt movie theaters and and movie going, um, but we're also really at a time when I would say 90% of the studio movies coming out this year are sequels, remakes, comic book movies, right? Like that's, that's about it. And, and one thing that um, Sony's done a great job of uh, in the past few years is getting people, getting people back to the theaters. So, so yeah, I mean, we kind of have to rely on their expertise as well and, and, and what will, will get people to show up. And what will get people to show up is fucking dinosaurs. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. Like, I mean, besides, <laughs> besides Adam Driver, besides yeah. y'all's names being attached to it, like, who doesn't like a dinosaur? Who doesn't want to see yeah. someone shooting at a dinosaur? I'll go see that all day. We always said, um, you know, in, in writing this movie, we're like, it's 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 no fair that Spielberg gets to have all the fun, you know? And, <laughs> and our feeling is like dinosaurs are, everybody loves dinosaurs. Like you're saying, like it's universal. And, and the fact um, of the matter, in our opinion, is like there should be as many dinosaur movies as there are superhero movies. Like there's, there's just that amount of like excitement for um, what dinosaurs were. It's it's kind of still insane to me to think that they did exist um, because yeah. it just seems so supernatural to a certain degree. It's an interesting possibility, though, that you sort of raise here. Do you think that the reason we don't see more dinosaur centric movies is because the the shadow of the Jurassic Park franchise looms so large? Yeah, I think it's two reasons. I think Steven Spielberg made a movie that's so great that it terrified all of us to ever even try anything in that kind of particular <laughs> genre. Because like early earlier in cinema history, back when like in the uh, like go motion like stop motion days, um, you know there were there were you would see multiple dinosaur movies um, yeah. even in a given year. But yeah, his his movie is such a towering achievement that it's frightening to even attempt to do it. And then I think the other thing is just um, coming up with a clever idea of how to use dinosaurs, because, again, I guess it's the same thing. It's the Michael Crichton idea of resurrecting idea, uh, resurrecting dinosaurs by way of a mosquito and ember is genius. So how do you do dinosaurs uh, conceptually? That sounds cool and, and, and is intriguing. And I think, mm-hmm. um, and we, we can expand on this later once we get into on writing, but like certainly a lesson that we took from Stephen King that that he talks about in in coming up with the idea of of Carrie is having two unrelated ideas and kind of smashing those together. And I guess for us, we were like, oh, what if you made Jurassic Park, but with Castaway? And that uh-huh. was one of the early Genesis ideas that we had that kind of um, gave birth to to essentially what is sixty five. So. Right. Well, and I, I do like the- now. I'm just like <laughs> now, now. I just can't stop imagining Castaway. <laughs> with, without without dinosaurs like now that's the version of that movie i want i want to see tom hanks in his little sweater with a volleyball <laughs> trying to fend off a velociraptor attack i would Absolutely. Fuck, be there opening day <laughs> yeah 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 do, take it do it with the same amount of seriousness where he has to lose all the weight and gets all gaunt but he's uh he's wrestling a gallimimus to the ground for food now God, yeah. we rewatched that one, one, we, one, one day i think artificial intelligence will be able to put that movie together for all of us oh, we'll see. yeah we'll, we'll get yeah. chat gpt on writing that script right now yeah. <laughs> um just as an aside we yeah. we rewatched castaway like like last week or something oh, wow. that shit is so good so that movie man that movie is a just a master class and i think it's the most terrifying like 
plane crash oh, ever easily. ever captured on film. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, that plane crash is harrowing. And it's just to be able to carry a movie with hardly any dialogue. It was a movie we studied absolutely when we were writing A Quiet Place, just how to carry a story without mm. um, the crutch of dialogue. It's it's mm-hmm. um, expert at that. Yeah. That's interesting. What what lessons did you take away from it? Just basically. Well, that's why there's a volleyball in a quiet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So exactly. Don't spike that ball. (laughs) I think the the lessons in um in visual storytelling are so important. How the visuals can really communicate ideas and moods and feelings and 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 to be honest, sixty five is um is kind of a when we were writing a quiet place, we thought a lot about silent film and trying to like. Mm -hmm. Silent film with Alien was was kind of the yeah. core genesis of A Quiet Place, and and we carried that through to sixty five. We kind of wanted to 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 take another <clears throat> swing at um, uh, visual visual storytelling. But I think like it it also is like what Castaway does so brilliantly is it doesn't get right into him like crashed on on the island like there's a substantial backstory that's there. And yeah. so I think with A Quiet Place, even with sixty five, like. Um, 65 does it slightly different, um, but I, I won't get into, into details about how that kind of mounts the, the backstory, but they all have these layers that then once you're into the action, like the point A to point B, like, how do you get off this Island? Um, it kind of, it, it, it allows like this roller coaster ride that then has this undercurrent of him, like needing to get back to Helen Hunt. And so there's a substantial mm-hmm. amount of um, emotion there. And I think, you know, 65, one of the things that it really tackles um, again, without giving too much away, like it tackles the idea of grief. And so that's a big like emotional through line that it has on top of this, you know, action adventure suspense <laughs> uh, dinosaur thrill ride. Well, oddly enough, so does a quiet place. You know that that's uh, parents dealing with grief of of their lost child too. So what I'm saying, and then you've you've got murdered kids and boogeyman. What do you guys need to get off your chest? <laughs> Just you know, children uh, need to always get uh, get murdered in, in uh, one one way, shape, or form. Right, murder right. all the children, says Beck and Woods. Yeah. Popular <laughs> there there was a correct Google. answer to that question, and you guys nailed it right off the bat. <laughs> Um, the more dead Ad- kids, the better. <laughs> you've got you've got Adam Driver headlining this thing. Mm. One of the biggest one of the biggest stars on the planet right now. Uh, tell us about that bad boy. Is he? Uh, <laughs> what's what's that guy like? He's. I mean, he's one of the great actors of our time. We've admired his work for so long. When we first saw him in Girls, like it was just a uh, uh, monumental <laughs> moment. Is like, who is this mm-hmm. person? Who is this? character he's he's he can be so explosive he's such a virtuoso with dialogue um and we challenged him to in 65 to you know work on not that he needs to work on anything he's a genius but just to try to try uh something that's a little bit more internal uh in terms of his performance and a little less it's not a verbose character he's very stoic in the in the movie and um and and there's a lot of um there's a great physicality to the role and i think that those challenging challenges were exciting to him and i also just think he really embraced the idea of uh you know obviously adam could go do any marvel movie or um, sequel or remake that's offered to him. I think he appreciated uh, that uh, we were in a position with a studio that was willing to 
do a, a slightly larger canvas movie that um, was uh, was a, was a little different. But I think you know the other thing that we absolutely adore about him is any conventional choice that an actor might otherwise make, he won't make that, and that's what makes him so incredibly smart and gifted as an actor and he's, really he's fun allergic, to watch. He's allergic to anything that's obvious. And so I think <laughs> as a performer and it's so great to watch. For it's us, so it was kind of the gold standard because, you know, same thing with A Quiet Place. Like we kind of adore, for lack of a better term, like being able to execute B movie premises. But um, when we're when we're lucky enough to, to have those executed by some of the best actors um, working today. And I think it's a testament with Adam, like he does his homework and that's why he's the best. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we talked endlessly about um, layers of the script and the character and rarely was it about like dinosaur fights and, and such because that was kind of the icing on the cake, so to speak. Um, and to be able to engage with somebody that thoughtful and talented just like elevates the elevates the work. It makes us as, as the writers and directors want to do better. And in turn, like we hope that we're inspiring everyone else that's, that's involved. And so it, it really was kind of a, uh, we're always pinching ourselves. The fact that we were able to collaborate with Adam on this film. Mm. That's well, awesome. Yeah. And it sounds to me like there's a, <clears throat> a phrase that my friends and I use when we talk about actors like that. And that's never bad. They're the never bad actors. They can be in bad movies, right? but they are never bad in it. And it's because they give a shit. It's like, it, look at the difference between somewhere up until about 12 monkeys era, uh, Bruce Willis. And I mean, I know that he's had medical things, but he, he checked out long before that, you know, mm -hmm. um, but he, you know, you can tell when he's invested and you could tell when he was invested in a project after, you know, after that time when he kind of checked out like the Moonrise Kingdoms and Loopers and whatnot. But you yeah. watch you watch him in like The Last Boy Scout, you know, it, which is a, a fine movie. You know, it's not the best movie ever made, but he is so fucking magnetic in that. And like you could just tell he gives a shit. And Adam Driver has a very similar feel and i to, to me i think that you know one of the biggest sins of the last star wars movie was fucking killing him off it's like <laughs> like it's to, to me like that that'll be the unforgivable thing for me from from rise of skywalker uh just because the idea of a kylo ren you know slash ben solo who has changed for the good but the he's also murdered fucking billions of people you know and he's out yeah. there trying to make amends is way more interesting than than the the Ray Skywalker ending, you yeah, know what I mean? yeah. I mean, um, and I think, that, and not to to shit on Daisy Ridley, I think she's great in that role. But you know, with somebody like Adam Driver, you know that that's what is excites me within that Star Wars universe. You know that he was to me the big find of of the uh, of the sequel trilogy. No, and, no question. Yeah. yeah, you can't take your eyes off of him every time he's on screen in those movies. It's just... probably why I love the Last Jedi. You know, so much is that it's so much about being in his mind and him. You know, stepping up and out under the shadow of Snoke. You know, oh, he, he has a lot more to chew on there. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, we got to move on to the Steve King <laughs> stuff. But, uh, gentlemen, we are uh, extremely excited to see 65. And when we yeah. ultimately do, like, many weeks from now, I I, I will definitely know let you know what I thought. Um, it's, it's one of my more anticipated movies. It looks big and fun, and that's basically all I want to be watching. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So... Let's uh, let's let's talk about your Stephen King origin stories. I'm, I, you know, whichever one of you would like to uh, answer that question first. Uh, I realize yeah. I didn't phrase it as a question, but we discussed. <laughs> yeah. <the show. laughs> 
Well, for me, Stephen King came on my radar when I was quite young, elementary school. And my first introduction was a paperback, like a uh, kind of a destroyed, heavily read uh, paperback of it that mm. my older brother had. And nice. I was too young to read it. But the reverence with which he talked about this book <laughs> and how it was the scariest thing imaginable, just the idea of it and the cover and the and the title, it, IT, was uh, nightmare fuel for me. And it really, it, it was great. I, I, it was almost like in, in some ways what make, can make a, um, a piece of work memorable is is often like what the audience brings to it and what you mm -hmm. bring to it with your own imagination. And so it started out with just those simple elements. Uh, it, my imagination was firing and it was so scary. And then shortly thereafter, I saw the 1990 uh, miniseries that, um, that an, an older kid who lived in my neighborhood uh, had access. He had like the cool parents that would let him watch um, very terrifying stuff. And, uh -huh. So I saw that at a, at a very young age and it, um, was I assume really he like recorded it off of a, a TV or something. Yeah. yeah he had right. a T-vote yeah. in 1991. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. It, it did hit video stores in like the, the mid nineties. So it could have possibly been that. So, but, uh, but you know, I don't know. There is something special about those like shared, um, memories, you know, where people, like, oh, oh, and then my, you know, my neighbor, this neighborhood friend, my best friend at the time, you know, he recorded this discreetly off a of TV or, you know, the, the, the weird kid in the, the neighborhood and passed me this book, you know, there, there's just something about that communal sharing of stuff that happens a lot. We've noticed in, in our. Yeah. And uh, I kind of, and I kind of miss that. There's such a, there's, it's so almost romantic, this idea of these unattainable things that you have to go out of your way to see and talk about and be infected by. It's not just something that you can just pull up on your phone and, and have instant access to the entire world immediately. And, and right. so there was just something about, about that being able like watching, watching the tape and, and just watching part one and being scared and then, Oh no, what's in part two. And am I brave enough to watch that? Uh, it, it it would just, it, it really added to the experience, but that was my introduction. Yeah. This is, um, and that's, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a question. That's, that's Scott that was just talking, right? You had a 50, 50 chance and you totally missed. Oh, <laughs> oh. Brian. All right. All right, Brian. So I, well, I just looked up both of your ages while, while you were talking, you're both 38. Correct. Um, so you were born in 84, a month apart. It looks like, which is yeah. interesting. Um, what what age did you see it at? Um, I mean, that must have that came been... out in, I think, 1990. Yeah, so, yeah, it would have been about like I, six or something. And you were why? Maybe it was, you know, it, it, like you said, if it was um, I don't know if it was on videotape. I want to say it was a recording, though. Uh, yeah, but, but you still could have seen it later. Like, were you was your age still in the single digits? Oh. Yeah, I think, I think it probably was. I and think I was about 11 or so when that came out maybe 10 did you see it when it i was nine was yeah and it yeah okay well then yeah then i must have been nine um yeah. or younger like we we were around that age right yeah but like i remember um you know we've talked about that that miniseries is the touchstone for so many guests that come on this show mm -hmm. you know everyone who's about 40 years old now 
you know, like remembers where they were when they when they saw it. And yeah, uh, to answer the question, I think you were going to ask. Yeah, I, I, I watched it live. Yeah. Oh, wow. Same. And I, re- I remember going to school the next week. I think it aired on like a across a Sunday and a Monday or something, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I remember like in the wake of it, having conversations with kids on the playground about it and just being like, that was fucked up, dude. You know, <laughs> like whatever the whatever the elementary school equivalent of <laughs> yeah. saying that was fucked up, dude, was so uh, not Brian. You have already had your chance to talk um but scott yes uh uh let's let's get your stephen king so it was um much much like on writing there's not like a singular story there's like many many pieces that that make up like an introduction I'll, i'll clarify that so it was also like a visual introduction meaning i would visit um i had family that lived in chicago my uncle Dwayne lived in chicago and he would often um show me like short clips of movies but like the most horrifying parts of those movies on vhs and so one of the scenes that he showed me i'm sitting down he's like scott i want to show you something and i'm sitting there (laughs) and i I, I see this clip of like a a, a high school dance and he's like just just wait for this and then i see this girl on stage get like dumped you know all this blood on top of her and i'm probably about five or six years old at this point and it's horrifying to me because I have no context as to what happens. I'm like, did somebody just die? And then the fire starts up. And then I don't think this was in the same sitting, but it was like the same circumstance. He shows me another clip where I see at that age, Gertie from ET, Drew Barrymore, Uh start to light shit on fire. Uh And I'm absolutely horrified at what I'm seeing because I thought she was like this sweet little girl that befriended an alien. Um, And then the third part of the story that kind of connected the dots was um, coming across the, the graphic novel for Creep Show, and subsequently mm. seeing the movie again. This was all around like age five, six or seven. And I didn't understand until seeing that graphic novel. The unifying um, factor was this guy named Stephen King. And as soon as I knew Stephen King was behind that, I started understanding more of like the tone of his work. And I, um, again, I, I just, I watched more than I read at that age because I was so young, but like sure. uh, cat's eye was like another piece that I saw at a oh, very yeah. young age that disturbed me um, with the, with quitters, um, the ledge. And then the the third one uh, general, which I don't believe King wrote if I, if I remember correctly, but like the fact oh, that he did, it's oh, just uh, okay. it's it's just an original for the movie. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, <laughs> and so the idea that there was a voice that strung all those together kind of was like an epiphany, and that was sure. probably like the first um, first uh, artist that that I was really introduced to that really spoke to um, the dark soul in my otherwise very innocent childhood. <laughs> uh, it was very thought provoking and very terrifying, but I, I loved it. I'm I'm sorry. And this was your uncle or your a cousin or yeah, my, my, my uncle, my my mom's brother. And he he's like a huge, huge movie fan for Christmas. He would give me like all these like obscure 1950s, 1960s movies on VHS. And uh, <laughs> he would love to like scar me in the best way possible with like all these little <laughs> was, video clips. That's the say. idea. Like, what is this man doing? Uh, showing like, the most horrific scenes <laughs> to a five or six year old getting his jollies, uh, or or was he just like trying to turn you into a Stephen King fan? We may I never think, know. 
I think he just, he loved it so much. He wanted to share it with somebody and there was no one else like in the house. Like my parents didn't necessarily want to like watch it. So he's like, Hey, you know, my five-year-old nephew, I, I, I can at least get him <laughs> to be my buddy. <laughs> There's, well, yeah. that's a, yeah. it's kind of a sad ending to that story, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I have no other friends. But I'm going to show this five-year-old <laughs> the fucking scene of Carrie getting a bucket of blood drawn <laughs> from Carrie. <laughs> um, uh, it, is, it is fun, though, to be in that position, too, yeah, especially sure. when you know it's, it's going to affect the kid. Like, you can tell. You know, you can tell if the kids are, are into that kind of stuff. That's That's been my favorite, you know, thing over the last, like, eight years or so has been showing showing my nephews super inappropriate things whether it's jackass or uh you know <laughs> something scary you know right 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 you know, it's sure just, uh, yeah i don't know there's there's not, a there's not, a there's I'm a, a place in heaven for all on this man just yeah. to be, just to be clear I say, there, there's a place in heaven for all uh non uh, non creepy uncles that are willing to do that kind <laughs> of stuff. yes yeah. there's a there's a special place uh, somewhere else for other other kinds of uncles but we won't get into that <laughs> Good Lord. Look at that. We're uh, real dark. Yeah. uh, So we've um, you you have you have brought to us a title that we have only discussed once before uh, with Ryan Johnson. He was on the show uh, during our first year of operation and uh, he came in with this title and it was mostly because we couldn't get him to reread uh, any other King title before doing this show. (laughs) He he was just he, he was prepping something or. I don't know what it was, but yeah, he was uh, about to go shoot glass onion. I think that, yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. And, but he, um, you know, he was, he was a great fit for this because, you know, he, he writes and directs his own stuff. And, and so do you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that you, that you chose this, uh, this title and I'm, I'm happy that we're, we're getting a chance to talk about it again. I think this is one of the more invaluable things that, that King has ever written. Even if, as as Eric was saying before the show, and I'm going to steal what you were saying, Eric. Um, you know, you read this thing, and it just set off, it sets off creative fireworks in your mind. You're just you're you're passionate. You you come away from reading on writing passionate to create. Um, so it it looms very large for me in terms of the the uh, books King has published. Would one of you like to explain to our audience uh all of whom i assume have read this but just in case someone hasn't uh what on writing is yeah i'll 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 give the really quick pitch ostensibly it's one part writing handbook one part memoir in service of inspiring and so there's it's it's divided into several parts it kind of starts off with um king talking about all these moments throughout his life that uh, inspired him and, and made him into the writer that he is. It continues on um, somewhat as uh, a handbook in in King's words about what aspects are important in your in your toolbox, as he puts it, to be a good writer. And and then it evolves into um, one of the final parts is uh, chronicling an incident where he was hit by a van. Um, severely injured, almost killed, and talks about resurfacing um, and resurfacing in so much that writing became incredibly difficult to the point that he almost came to a standstill. And then he surmounted Mm -hmm. that and obviously has has continued prolifically uh, to this day. And 
it's just a really personal piece. Um, but to us, like the best book um, on writing that you could ever pick up. Yeah, that's a that's a really good description of it. Where do we start? You know, we we kind of talked about this before the show that we like none of us really knew <laughs> how to kick this off. Um like a discussion like this because a book like On Writing does not really map onto the format that we have for this show. Um Eric, do you have any bright ideas? Yeah, I think to me the most interesting thing about on writing. Um, and the thing that I discovered much to my happiness when I picked it up, when it was first published was I kind of was under the impression that it was just a straight, you know, here's, here's uh, Stephen King putting on his English teacher hat and he's going to teach us grammar. Right. Yeah, and right. I thought it was going to be homework. Um, and then much to my surprise, uh, as, uh, you mentioned, uh, earlier, it's it's like it starts off as a like biography it's just him it, it's it's Stephen King using the same voice he uses whenever he's doing those little postscripts that I love so much where it's like yeah well we just had a good yarn didn't we and boy I sure hope things turn okay out okay from the <laughs> content and you know sign Stephen King Bangor Maine you know April 1987 or whatever, you know, it's like he has that like pull up a chair and sit a spell and I'm and uh voice throughout this whole thing, even when he gets into the more, uh, you know, scholarly aspects of, of how how to write. But like the reason why it's such a compelling read is that like you just pulled into you're getting all this background on like where a lot of his stories came from just by him telling a fucked up story about, you know, his uh his babysitter farting on him or whatever the fuck he, he says, you know, at the beginning, you yeah. know, it's like, it's like he, he does it in such a great folksy, you know, way that by the time you're actually learning something, uh, you know, yeah. you're, you're, are, you're kind of enveloped in this thing in the way like a great teacher would do is like get you, you know, he shows his passion. So I think yeah, that to me would be the thing maybe we talk about is that kind of balance of biography and like actual like scholarly book. It's so true. It, it, it It's such a great discovery when you find this book um, because you think it, it might be like, is this going to be medicinal? Is this medicine for for myself as a writer? I, I think I first heard about on writing from uh, Roger Ebert, actually, mm. either in a I don't know if it was a film review or a blog. I, I'm not sure, but Ebert would talk about how it was his favorite book on writing. And so when I first read it, I'm, I'm expecting the toolbox portion of it. Right. And what you find is of course, Stephen King can't help himself, but to tell a great story. And so walking through the chronology of just even being like a young kid who's interested in writing and he's writing stories and printing his own newspapers and handing it out to classmates. It's just, it's, um, it's really fun to read and it's very relatable uh, to, to Scott and I as two writers. Like there's oftentimes you read this book and you go, Oh, like, I, like I, I remember like kind of doing something like that or feeling a certain way. And it, and it makes you feel instantly less alone as a, as a writer uh, hmm. because uh, <laughs> writing is at times a kind of scary, uh, lonely profession. And he really humanizes it. And and then eventually through this biography section, working his way up to his first sale with Carrie, it eventually becomes wish fulfillment. It eventually becomes like, oh, this is like a great career or even just a career in general is achievable that you can start with 
uh, just being a student who's hungry and, and then you can become a, uh, writer who's writing in their free time and getting rejected by everybody. And then you can become, and then from there you could go on to maybe even sell a, sell a book. It's, 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 um, it's writer fuel, uh, as story. I think the the other thing to to talk about, at least with the with the biography section that that I find incredibly poignant, is often there's there's like the question of like to anybody it, whoever has like a, a pursuit, um, but like for us specifically, like when did you know you wanted to become a filmmaker? And mm. I, there's always a hard time answering that question. Like I could fabricate an answer for that that might have some meaning to it, but it really is a journey that's very fractured. And one of the things I love about King's stories is, you know, there's like a story of, of a babysitter who locked him in, in a closet after he, he threw up a bunch of eggs that he, that he ate. And I'm immediately like brought back to my childhood. And I'm like, what, what was traumatic at that childhood that I still have a memory to this day? And how does that affect me? And I can think of about a moment, literally like one for one, um, not with a babysitter, but where I accidentally like got locked in my room and the terror that I felt as like a four-year-old, I still remember to this day, I think, because it was such, such a heightened emotion. And, and there's other moments of, um, like he hears a story from his mother that she saw a sailor commit suicide and uh, that the stuff that came out of that guy's body was green. And I can only imagine as a yes. child, <laughs> how that, that still permeates his brain, even though he's not seeing it with his own eyes. And I think about right. like myself, I was at a um, Boy Scout sleepover. I was like 11 years old and we were playing racquetball at this community gym and the racquetball doors were huge. They were like massive. And one of the kids I was playing with um, had his finger in a door as was closing and part of his finger was totally severed. No, nope. seeing that with my own eyes at like age 11 and like the trail of blood and everything, not to get like too crazy graphic, mm -hmm. but it seared myself in my brain of the surreal nature of the reality of um, severe issue, like issues, just violence and, and what happens, but mixed with this idea that this is still reality. And I felt so unrooted. And so the, what I'm trying to drive at in terms of the point is that this whole biography, I think as a creative brain, whoever reads it can reflect upon their own life and all these moments. And in turn, I find that really inspiring because I think about what kind of screwed me up as a kid or what kind of anchored itself as a very memorable moment. And I think those are things that like both Brian and I individually, we still draw upon when we're coming up with ideas for stories. So it's, it's massively inspiring to use it as a, as a mirror to yourself if you choose mm -hmm. to use it that way. Yeah. And you don't have to do that just even if you're a writer, like that's the interesting thing that I think that this book does is it's, it's very much like, um, and I think I brought this up when Ryan was on the show as well, but I get the same feeling reading this as I do reading Robert Rodriguez's rebel without a crew yeah. where you just get pumped up to create something. Um, it doesn't, it, it could be pottery. It could be poetry. It could be, you know, you could like make a dress or make a shirt or, you know, tend a garden, you know, build something. It's like it, it, whatever it is, it just kind of creatively energizes you when you read this book. Um, and 
you know, and in, in that respect, like we, we get asked a lot, like what books do you think uh, will be, you know, taught in schools that are King books? We get asked, asked that actually way more than you would assume uh, we would get that question. Um, and usually I default to like, I think The Stand is a great American novel. You know, I think The Long Walk has a, you know, a lot of depth to it, you know, and I'll point to those things. But in reality, it's going to be on writing. Like on writing is going to be, you know, I, I think over the next 20, 30, 40 years will become just a default, um, like maybe late high school, early college, you know, books. Uh, and it should be because it's not dry. You know, it's, it's something that might actually inspire creative kids to go on and do creative things. Yeah. And I, I, I absolutely like totally agree with the longevity of it because it's, um, it, it is so much more than, um, this is how to write, like it's how to deal with, the hurdles of life. Like one of, one of the things that I, I love and I, I um, wrote this down as uh, a passage. So I'll just, I'll read this and, and talk about it. Like he talks about failure and he says like, when he got a rejection slip, I pounded a nail into the wall above the web core, wrote happy stamps on the rejection slip and poked it onto a nail. Then I sat on my bed and listened to Fats sing, I'm ready. I felt pretty good actually. When you're still too young to shave, optimism is a perfectly legitimate response to failure. Hmm. So that's like a section from the book. And I would actually extrapolate from that. I'm like, I don't even think it's when you're still too young to shave, optimism is a legitimate response. I think that's yeah. something even when you're older, it it should be a legitimate response to failure because so much of um any pursuit outside of like writing or filmmaking, um, like you said, if it's pottery or whatever there is always failure that will permeate those situations. And I think it's a good reminder that you don't have to react to that. Like it's the end of the world. Um, it's really actually just another opportunity to make a different decision to either continue what you're doing, but find a slightly different way or go in opposite direction, but just to like persist. And I feel right. like that's, that's a theme that echoes throughout the, the book, um, both in the early section where he talks about failure as a young writer, but certainly um, when he hits the walls after he's trying to recover from his accident and he's still kind of facing this, um, this blank page that I think is such an instantaneously relatable um, situation to anybody that, that has, has written. Yeah. Um, but it's something that you take comfort if like a master storyteller like Stephen King can't put words on the page, but persists and finds a way through that, frankly, anybody should be able to. I, I, at least that's the way that I kind of read into it and get inspired by it. I'm uh, endlessly curious about people who are like yourselves, who are writing partners. Um, I, I have found that when it comes to creative writing, I or any creative pursuit, I work better with a partner um, and this goes for just doing this show. You know, there are there are times where I have pitched Vespi an idea uh, like, hey, you know what we should do? And uh, he'll be he'll like s uh, some of the more outlandish ideas that we've come up with are uh, can be traced back to me. But there's a number of outlandish ideas that Vespi has like, <laughs> like talked me down off a ledge from, <laughs> you know, of like. You know, not like you're out of your fucking mind. That's not going to work. Yeah. But like more gently than that, because Eric, you're you're more gentle in your approach. I, I, I'm I a gentle think. soul for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I'm I'm curious uh, how the the practical advice provided in on writing um, 
was incorporated into to your operation as a, as mm-hmm. a team and and what your relationship is like as a, a you know a duo a screenwriting dynamic duo I love that you're asking this because there's there's like such a perfect um, passage in on writing that totally applies to Scott and I's relationship. Um, King talks about this concept of the ideal reader. And in his case, it's his wife, Tabby, which is this person, Mm -hmm. the person he's writing for in his mind. It's the person he wants to make laugh with a, with a good joke and wants to make her afraid when he's um, diving into suspense. And, and, and in many ways, she's his first critic of, of the work. And, for Scott and I as writing partners, it's all about uh, writing in our own little pockets and and really hoping to impress the other person and not disappoint them. So if it's something like um, A Quiet Place, you know, we I might write the first 10 pages of the script and then I'm going to send those 10 pages to Scott and cross my fingers and Scott's going to read it and he's going to come back and say, ah, like, I didn't like this. I didn't really understand that. Um, I'm confused over here. I think this could be better. What if it was like this? And it, and it becomes this kind of uh, collaboration of sorts. And, and, it, and it's nice to be able to have that sounding board. That's so, so crucial, whether you're writing alone uh, or together in our case, but in alone for King, it's, it's, it's his wife, who who knows him and knows his work and has similar interests and taste and and um yeah it's just been so crucial to our to our process hmm. that's well, i think i think that's really sound advice yeah. because that is strikingly similar to uh, just as a for instance when uh when i was running birth movies death and you know we we had a very small staff of people we were in a unique position where traffic was not of no concern to the company that owned us. Mm-hmm. So it was like we had a budget and we could have a staff and we could, but it had to be a limited staff. Um, a lot of contributors. Uh, but the prime directive was write what you're passionate about. You know, that was like the guiding principle of that yeah. website. And a thing we frequently said to one another was like, well, I'm just writing for y'all. <laughs> like, yeah, if anyone right. else happens to enjoy this, that's like a cherry on top of the Sunday. But otherwise, like, you know, we're, we were we were literally just writing to entertain one another. And I think that I think that's really valuable advice. Like, if this is someone's judgment that you trust, then that's really all that matters. You know, like you you don't necessarily need comments from the peanut gallery. So yeah. like, and I, Eric, you have, you've, you've written with a, a writing partner before. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. No, is I, it that way for y'all? It, well, it's different. It's weird. It's different for different projects. Like I, uh, I wrote a, a script about geez, over 10 years ago now that, that we sold, which was great. It never got made. It came within a, a, an inch of getting made, but, uh, but our process was somewhat different because we wrote that essentially where he came up with the basic idea. Then we brainstormed all the beats together. And then I was, I was the writer. So I went off and I like wrote the script and then he did revisions on it. Um, but what I found in what it sounds like happens with, uh, with you, Brian and Scott is that, that anytime we had a conflict, it was, 
you knew you knew you were in a good creative collaboration because it was never a no that doesn't work it is it was always like um a yes and or yes or mm-hmm. it's like okay that's interesting here but what you know have you considered this or have you looked at it from this angle because if you do it this way then maybe it's going to undermine this moment later you know it became uh, a constructive thing um and uh, i've i've been in creative uh uh relationships before where it's been uh it's just been like a solid you know absolute not and you know why because i say so kind of things and those never last right um i don't know i could tell in 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 the thing that that we wrote and sold like there's we got two responses from it because it was a horror movie set in a nursing home and uh it was very poltergeisty so we got lots of oh you really like uh steven spielberg (laughs) and i said yes of course and this is pre-stranger things so we were ahead of the fucking curve on that one maybe um uh if only it had gotten made um but uh in the other one when people read the script was like oh you like stephen king and so i would actually love to ask uh scott and brian about king's influence as a writer even not considering the the uh I don't know the, uh, the instructional side of on writing. Like, do you, did you having grown up reading his stuff and watching, you know, the, the good adaptations and things and seeing how, uh, you know, how the character work is like, I, I, my theory is that like, if you grew up being fanatical about King, that you can't help, but have some of just naturally have some of his style in your writing, whether it's, you know, just in how you deal with, yeah. with characters or how you you know literally because the, the way i write includes things that king actually writes in his novels like and I, i've noticed this and I, I must have ripped him off but like to me that's just what writing is like things like he'll do an aside and he'll put that in parentheses right right, right. and like yeah. and i've just noticed that nobody else fucking does that you know when they write but i do that because that's what i grew up reading like do you yeah. guys have find yourself like yeah. following yeah. in that Absolutely. I mean, even like specifically what you're talking about with the asides, I mean, there's sometimes that we do that with um, with character dialogue or, or something in in uh, the descriptions of, of scripts. Um, I mean, I I think one of one of the guiding forces that any of King's work kind of put upon us at an early age was putting the extraordinary in the ordinary. And so, you know, a classic example, you know, that struck us really young that we already were talking about was um, Stephen King's it, you know, it was terrifying to imagine you can just be a group of friends, but you're, you're all of a sudden, uh, under the threat of this terrifying entity and uh, Pennywise and, and in the form of a clown. And what's brilliant about that or something like stand by me and you're, you're, um, finding a dead body. Like you're, you're using your own life as kind of the starting point and then something intercedes in a very dangerous way. I think right. in the work that we have, um, you know, A Quiet Place is is certainly that where we were like, it's all anchored around a family. And even if there wasn't this alien invasion, this family would be um, having issues like communicating and they have to surmount them. Like you could you could literally create like a bedroom drama, so to speak, out of that that situation and still find a way to make it work without the science fiction horror blend to it. Um, so I think that's a mark in, in a lot of the stuff that inspires us that we've taken from King is to try to find the relatable. And he, he talks even in, in on writing, he talks a lot about um, 
writing through honesty, like finding your uh, own own voice, making sure that the dialogue is something that isn't just there to service plot. It's there honest and you'll find your own words coming out of other characters' mouths. He, he frames it also in terms of if you're writing, you know, the bad guy or the best friend, like all those characters need dimension still um, because they all regard themselves as the main character. And so I think that's something we're always trying to pressure test any of our work to make sure there's as much dimension as we can lend. Um, obviously in movies, you have the, the trick of fitting, you know, between a 90 minute to a two hour runtime. And so you're not able to extrapolate maybe as much as you otherwise could in, in, uh, literature or prose, but it's something that we always try to aim for. And I, I feel like Stephen King has been kind of like the, um, the, the main touchstone for, for those sensibilities at least. Mm. Um, one thing I'd like to ask you is I haven't seen some of your earliest work for instance, Lost Found or University Heights <laughs> or Summer, anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, all your work that I'm aware of is is all horror-tinged in some way. And I'm curious what each of your, or or collectively, as the case may be, what your, your ethos is in terms of approaching horror. Like, what makes a good piece hmm. of horror? Well, I mean, some of those er- earlier films that you referenced uh, that we did were, were like uh, the equivalent of like student films that we were making yes. in um, high school and college, you know, and it was funny because they were our version of like, like it was uh, we kind of came of age as filmmakers around 1999, which is, uh, as you guys know, probably better than anybody. That was like a masterful year uh, for for film. It was uh, yes. Suspense, it was Fight Club, it was Magnolia, it was um, The Insider the matrix um american beauty which you know unfortunately american canceled beauty. but great before yeah, we yeah, that shit. exactly and and so our um our taste has always been all over the map we, we love every genre and we're like genuine fans of every every different type of genre and 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 in whether it's lowbrow comedy or highbrow like it's like we love wes anderson as much as like a uh a, a, you know a a, a mediocre Adam Sandler movie, like our taste is everywhere. And so we were finding our voices in, um, in high school and college, making these films that were basically our version of like boogie nights when we were in high school. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. like our, our version of American beauty and really realizing that um, for whatever reason, our taste as filmmakers is, darker <laughs> and edgier and a little more genre oriented. And um, it's not because that's the only stuff we love. It's just for some reason it rolls off the tongue. Maybe it's because Scott's weird uncle traumatized him. As a child. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of it. But uh, I think it's also um, our love for what we call like pure cinema, meaning like the idea of making a movie to us, the best version of it is like really using every single tool at your disposal, whether that's um sound design, it's the performance or how you move the camera. And I think, you know, what horror does and suspense um, does so well is it utilizes the camera. I mean, you can be carrying your lead character in a frame and then the camera can pan off that character down like a darkened hallway for sake of example. And by lingering on that darkened hallway, that's telling you something underneath the guise of like genre that, that there's something unnerving coming out of there. And I think that infected us uh, very early on. And I, and I think we were so infatuated with the audience experience that 
horror movies were, were giving us. So like you can go to, um, you can go see the hours, uh, with Nicole Kidman and, and it's kind of a, it's a very quiet movie going experience. Mm -hmm. Then you walk out of the theater and you, and we're all, you kind of nod with your family and friends like that was nice. All right. And all right, time to go to cheesecake factory. You could have that experience (laughs) and then you could have, uh, an alternate experience of going to see uh, Frank Darabont, uh, Stephen King's The Mist, and <laughs> watching the annihilation of <laughs> everyone in the audience and the the just like cackling hopelessness uh, that that ending elicits out of people and the reaction it gets. <laughs> I'm really kind of enamored with how uh, the genre can play an audience like a piano. Mm. A slightly different conversation to be had afterwards at the Cheesecake Factory. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to say that cackling hopelessness is like the that's that's a band name waiting to happen. Uh, That's so fucking good. I'm going to steal that at some point. (laughs) Uh, But for real, what are y'all's Cheesecake Factory orders? Uh, oh man, it. I mean, with the factory, I'm there for it's the bread. Bad. The bread is is so good in mm. a, Like I would go to Cheesecake Factory just eat the bread and leave. I mean, that's, that's a that's a tough question because last time I went, at least you know their menu is one of those brilliant novel. Like it rivals uh, any Stephen King novel in terms of size. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so massive, terrible um, ending. It's definitely yeah. the stand of of all uh, chain <laughs> restaurants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, like like I I think I. We're we're going down a an alleyway here, but like with Cheesecake Factory, I feel like here here's here's number one thing to know. If you go to a restaurant and their their menu is like a phone book, usually a bad sign. <laughs> but somehow, Cheesecake Factory, everything I have ever ordered at Cheesecake Factory was good. I know it's like I know it's mocked as this sort of like, you know. It is the face of this, like a, a big corporate restaurant and all, you know, and everything that goes along with that. But it's late I stage honestly capitalism think it's fucking delicious, you know, and I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit it. You're you're talking to two guys here that um, sometimes just drive to Universal Studios to eat at Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Uh, so. <laughs> Oh, I've been to Margaritaville, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I can vouch for that menu. But... <laughs> Absolutely. <not. laughs> I mean, the cheeseburger in paradise is delicious. So, <laughs> do you have a preferred menu item at the Cheesecake Factory? That is the question the King Cast is putting to you now. Ah, that is, <laughs> and that you're is trying to dodge it. We don't appreciate that. No. I feel like uh, well, we nope, have nobody to... can see this, but Scott's googling right now, and it's like we're gonna do it all day. If you're <laughs> what is the menu? I can do it off the top of my head, babies. <laughs> like I'm not even <laughs> scared. So cashew chi- the the cashew chicken. Cashew chicken. Okay. Yeah, mm. it's fucking delicious. Okay. I, go I mean, there, everything I've ever up. ordered at Cheesecake Factory yeah. is is delicious. But I mean, the avocado egg rolls definitely. Uh, the glam burgers. I don't know why they're called glam burgers. I never knew that. But the, <laughs> I uh, see you're going in order on the menu. As yes, I am. The, uh, the macaroni <laughs> and cheeseburger uh, is, is pretty solid. So that, that okay, might describe the mechanics of that to me. Is it literally just a scoop of macaroni and cheese on top of a t- cheeseburger? Uh, it's it's fried. So it's like fried. Oh, macaroni for fuck's and sake. Balls. So mm. It's it's like, you know, a double heart attack waiting, but you know, it's a it's a hell of a way to go, you know. I tried one of those ones and it was it, like like a just like a fried macaroni and cheese ball and mm. it was like I don't know, man. Like Caligula shit. 
Like, yeah. like too too far over the line. Like this should not <laughs> exist. We shouldn't. It's like the the science fair projects they come up uh, come up with at the Texas State Fair, where it's like we'll deep fry fucking anything, <laughs> and what? you know. So butter? that's how you, you end up butter? with like we'll fucking deep fry it. Ice yeah, cream? like a gummy worm I- someday, and all the gummy worms are like triple deep fried with fucking cinnamon and chocolate and shit on them. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's why it's called factory. It's not called like the, you know, cheesecake gourmet or cheesecake mm. cafe. It's the factory. So they're they're experimenting. There. <laughs> so, so I have a a question about King. He where he, he definitively answers one of the most uh, popular questions he get, which is like, where do you get your ideas? And he's. Uh, he subscribes to this kind of idea of there being kind of a creative pool out there that we're all fishing out of. Yeah. Um, and I want to bring this up specifically because that very same writing partner and I, who wrote the, uh, the home, which was the script we sold years ago, our, one of our follow-up projects to that was a story that we wrote only the first act of because we stopped, uh, after watching, uh, your fucking movie, uh, quiet place because our our story was all about a deaf lead and her disability becomes the uh, key to solving the supernatural thing that she's uh, or countering the supernatural threat that she's in, in, encouraging there and so I feel like that we've fished out of the same similar waters definitely. there at that point uh, hey, and you motherfuckers writing? got there first so <laughs> but did you stop writing it? Cause I, cause we yes. heard, we talk about this sometimes how like, so we are all fishing out of the same pool, right? There's this like yeah. collective unconscious that's, that is, that is on the tip of everybody's tongue. But, um, we're also haunted by this, um, story that M night Shyamalan told once about, uh, when he heard that, uh, Casper was being like turned into a movie. He quit mm. writing the sixth sense. Oh, and so it's like, you never <laughs> I feel like, stuff, like we're pulling from the same stuff stuff right um but yeah. like you got to finish it uh, because you just know it's probably it, they always end up completely different yeah um, yeah no i mean we've talked about it we're, we're going we still like the idea the basic setup for it we're just gonna have to change up change up a few things uh now uh but <laughs> but yeah no we, we've talked about it but we we have a revenge thing that we kind of jumped into right after gotcha, that so gotcha. well it's funny it's funny too that you mentioned that because um one of one of the impetuses for um Millie uh, in in a quiet place, a deaf character yeah. in the script. Um, one of the reasons that was even something that we were writing about is because we were working on a Pied Piper project um, mm. for years, and the lead character in that had a hearing impairment, um, and so it was like a modern day telling of the Pied Piper. And the idea mm. was the Pied Piper lures the children away, but the reason that like our lead um, wasn't lured away as a child is because he had a hearing impairment, and like. Right. There was um, there was a competing project or I think like two or three competing projects uh, that were existing. And we were basically like worried about having anything else out in the ether that already like people at the time that were really prolific were working on. We were like, oh, we're we're never going to get this made. And and we had this friend who um, had a hearing impairment that we kind of based all of that on top of. And so it was something that we took a took a pivot from and we we're like, how do we use our own life experience with our friend who had this hearing impairment and we put them into a story that feels organic in a way that feels like it services 
who right. our friend was in real life. And that kind of gave birth to a quiet place. But it was like not an immediate eureka moment. It was us putting all these down and like in into notebooks and, and word pads. And and one thing that King talks about in on writing is um that you're you're not your job isn't to find these ideas or unearth them. It's just to be aware when they kind of zip past you. And so right. what we always tend to do is just put any crazy idea that we have down somewhere in our emails or on our computers. And sometimes we don't come back to them for years and years and years. But then there's that that moment. And again, King talks about this where two unrelated ideas can smash together. And, mm. and he talks about coming up with the idea of Carrie and this um, idea when he was like cleaning a, the girl's shower room. I, I think it was with his brother um, or, or his friend. I forget which. But um, and they discover and it basically becomes like one of the scenes from Carrie. And then he was also reading about telekinesis. And that was a eureka moment of like smashing those two ideas together that gave birth to um, to Carrie. And so we always try to be very receptive anytime one of us has something that that really captures our attention. But we don't usually activate that idea for years and years sometimes. Right. Like it, it, with A Quiet Place, with 65, um, those are things movies and ideas that we've lived with for well over a decade for each of them. And just finally, it starts to become something that is undeniable for us. And we have to just get that out of our system. Right. Well, I do want to say that uh, I was launching another project, which was Lena Dunham fighting Cretaceous era uh, <laughs> dinosaurs. And that has to be scrapped too. So thanks guys. No, no, um, no, but, but you're right. And, and that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about, um, this book in particular was how he mentioned that in, what King has said is that like, if he gets an idea and he, it's like, he has a, a, a litmus test for it, like a barometer. Like if the idea still engages him a month later, two months later, three months later, he knows it's there to, to stay. And that if an idea falls out, then he's just not going to write about it. And mm -hmm. it make, it makes me so insanely curious like what were the ideas that weren't good enough for King? Like, cause I can guarantee you those ideas were still going to be like heads and shoulders better than like 98% of the other horror writers out there. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I wonder that too. And I wonder how many of those ideas did he deem unworthy and then discard? And it actually would have been a masterpiece and we'll never know. I mean, he talks right. about how, uh, Carrie was basically almost discarded yeah. and one of his piece, one of the like best pieces of writing advice in on writing is that um, just because something's really hard, you should never stop working on the piece. Like you, you got to push through because he, he stopped and started and threw that out so many times. And, and I know Scott and I relate to that because a quiet place was something we had the first version of it was like a little 10 page uh, proof of concept that was just, sitting on a hard drive and we were really not sure we were kind of just not really going to do anything with it. And it was our wives who were like, no, you got to like, we really like this. And they kind of really encouraged us to pursue that. And, and so I, I always wonder with, with writers, uh, are writers the best judge? Are they, are they the best judge of, of, uh, of, of what, what is their best work and, and who knows? At what point do they feel that too? Because, you know, in, in my experience, the cycle's always 
huge excitement when the idea seems to be working yeah. right when, during the brainstorm you get that it's so exciting you just are itching to get it written you're, you're you're dying to get it out there you're plotting it out you're doing whatever in your mind your your brain's firing with all the possibilities and then as you're writing you almost always get to a point where you're like oh i fucked this up i ruined this idea <laughs> this isn't right. going to work this isn't connecting with what i wanted it to uh, and then, then you get like a second wind and like, maybe that carries you to the, to the end of the first draft or whatever, but like at whatever point along that, that journey, if you, you know, ask the writer honestly to say what they think, like it's going to go from, no, this is awesome. It's going to work. Nobody's ever seen anything like this or like, it's, Oh, this is a disaster. Nobody's ever going to read this. And if they do, they're going to hate it. You know, it's so true. It's so true. In your own work, have you, have there been pieces that you've discarded that you've, um, quit on because it got too too tough or too hard or just wasn't working i'm kind of curious because i know we've been there many times no the only the only one that that we like straight up put a pin in um was the listeners which is the 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 one that shares way too many similarities to uh a quiet place because that was just something that it was too integral to the overall theme of the movie sure. to just mm-hmm. like, okay, well now she can hear or whatever. Sure. It was like, I think we just needed, <laughs> we needed some distance from it. Um, we could rework some of it, but that's the only one we, we kind of put a pin on everything else that we've set out to do. We've either written or like we're in the process. Now we did a, uh, my, my creative partner, uh, Aaron Morgan and I, we, we made a short film in 2020 that was going to, well, it was released in 2020. We were going to premiere at South by and then uh, COVID happened. Oh, um, and, uh, but Owned. we got kind of what we wanted out of that. Essentially. Like we did this proof of concept short called seek. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we're very proud of it. We put, you know, our whole heart and soul into making a nice tight five minute, creepy, spooky, um, you know, a uh, girl in a bathroom, uh, uh, versus a, a playful demon kind of thing and uh, set up, a, you know, lots of world building within this five minutes. Like we're, we did everything we could to say that this would be great. And then we, uh, even though we didn't get our big premiere, we got, uh, uh, we got it in front of a lot of people. Uh, our agent was at Paradigm and then he moved to CAA and we moved with him. Um, and uh, so I think they gave us a little bit of legitimacy for a short oh, film. Sure. Filmmaking. Yeah. And uh we've been working over the last couple of years to develop the feature version of it. Oh, so, how cool. so that's a very slow fucking process, but you know, yeah. we're, we're getting through it. But I also think I'm very picky. I'm not, I, I don't have the ethic that Stephen King does of I'm sure, waking sure. up every, every you know yeah. morning at 8am and writing until 1pm. Yeah. And totally. like, I, I wish I had that ethic, but, um, but, but I, I but don't. I think, so, but yeah. I think that's worth talking about from the book. Cause we, we, by the way, we don't have that work ethic either, but it's like one of the, more staggering reveals in the book that he is writing every single day. And yeah. he even kind of like, he kind of jokingly says like, except holidays. And then, and then after that, he's kind of like, eh, but just, but actually <laughs> holidays too. You know? <laughs> yep. And it's like that kind of work ethic is not only does it make, it's part of like what makes his craft so unbelievably strong, but it also shows how much he loves it. Like he, like he would, not there's nothing he'd rather be doing but sitting at the desk and writing and i think that that's like so important again for it's a good life lesson not just for writers or filmmakers but for anything which just follow like your passion and what you love to do and if you're doing what you love 
you're going to show up for it. And if you show up for it, you're going to get better and better and better at that particular thing. Right. I, I would also add, though, conversely, there, there was something that I found poignant in, um, in my latest reread of it, where he does say like that life isn't a support system for art, uh, right. which, which in so many words, it feels like you can't only concentrate on just doing the art. Like you need right. to still live your life. And, and through that, that's where your inspiration comes from. That's yeah. where relations come from that, that invigorate your art, the way that he talks about um, his wife, Tabby, like being his muse. And, and I think beyond that, it, it's um, the, the, really the place where story ideas come from by, by living life and not just like burying your head in the sand with only the work or only, only reading and only doing this or that, that kind of would cut you off otherwise from what might be great inspiration through, through living. Right. Yeah. That's have you all sure. ever uh, come up with a, uh, you know, the basis for what you thought was a horror movie and then gotten a little bit into it and realized like, this isn't going to work. Like, have you, you yeah. ever had an idea that you were like super excited about up front, right? Yeah. And then you got a little ways into it and realized like, nah, nah. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just another day at work. I mean, that's yeah. just like, uh, yeah, hundreds of times. Um, <laughs> and, you know, when you're first starting out, it's it, like when we were kind of like younger writers, it was important to even though we got, you'd get halfway through and go, Oh, what a disaster. Like, what were we thinking? This is, this is so bad, but it's important to finish it because you just learn so much from the process. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't so know. how many, so how many of those scripts do you guys have on hand? Oh, I mean, we wrote, we wrote, I mean, probably 30 scripts before we were even professional. Yeah. And, and they're and bad. There's some, and there's Holy some shit. Yeah, there's some funny ones. I mean, keep in mind, we started at a quite, quite a young age. So some of them are, are terrible just because uh, we didn't have the toolkit. We hadn't read on writing yet, <laughs> um, and then didn't know what the hell we were doing. Um, but um, but some of them were, uh, you know, right before we sold our first um, first couple of scripts. And even frankly, the scripts we have sold. I mean, we've written. Yes, we we are responsible for a lot of terrible screenplays. <laughs> um, absolutely, yeah. No, it's um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where you try to learn something from every. Hmm. possible project and 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 just and also just try to enjoy it because how do you well how do you know when to jump ship Mm. that's a great question i mean i think what we always try to do is we we try to work on a couple of projects at a time when we can and therefore working on one then inspires the other because then once you've hit like a dead end on one you're you're excited and hungry just to like go into the other. But in terms of jumping mm-hmm. ship, I think because we balance it, there's been on occasions that we've jumped ship because we're feeling more just in basic words, like more passionate, passionate about another. And then sometimes like that one that we jump ship on, maybe we'll come back to, or there's like a core idea in there that we'll try to appropriate into something else. Kind of like that Pied Piper in a quiet place character. Um, but I think if it's, if it's, you know, months later, and you're not really feeling the muse on that, that it's, it might be telling you that you've lost whatever spark, or maybe you, you don't have that story left in you. And I think months months later, so you're, you're, you're picking up and dropping off like all the fucking time then. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, you've written 30 scripts, unproduced scripts by your own admission. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like, that's, that's time consuming, you know? So, yeah. so the idea that you might like pause and then months later be like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. Right. Right. Like that's, that's staggering to me. I think like the older we get, the more we try to, um, to trust our gut and try to focus that work as much as possible. And by focus, you know, it's, it's like, is it an idea that we have been sitting on for years and years? Cause usually that's a good sign. If we're still thinking about it, then there's something there. And then there's in the meantime, we've written down like character sketches. And so we try to like snowball all those to the point that when we're hitting the page that we know we're going to power through to the end because we've hit so many dead ends mm. in the past. And I think sometimes those dead ends come from not uh, gestating the, the ideas enough or, or looking at them from enough angles to really scrutinize where, where the, the holes might be, whether they're plot holes or character art, totally satisfying. But are, are, are you writing on spec, at, you know, still to this point or, or most of the things that you're writing are, are you getting, are you like pitching and getting paid for? Um, we almost only write on spec and it's because we love we just love that process. We love the blank page and we love the freedom to be able to write whatever we want. Um, 65. Sorry, can't go in this direction because if you, you, that's not what we pitch. And that's not what we pitch. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Well, but, but, but clearly we, you know, we make, make an exception for, for, for Mr. King um, with the boogeyman. But um, <laughs> yeah, we love, we really, we like um, just being able to do our own thing. And um, yeah, yeah. Like 65 was something we, wrote on spec and it was um, a larger canvas movie and it was scary to write it on spec because nobody with uh, nobody is entitled to, to pay for a movie like that. And so you do take a risk when you, when you write on spec, but you are rewarded with uh, freedom and, and a little bit more fun. And I think ultimately like you're able to sell the final vision of the movie versus like in the pitching process, you can talk about what the movie is. And if you get the studio or producers on board, they have their own idea of what that is, but you all could be at a meeting and you're all seems like agreeing to what the story is, but then you deliver the draft and everybody is picking it apart because they saw it differently. And we've certainly been in those circumstances and it's, it's just frustrating because you're not able to um, in the pitch process, fully articulate what's in your head and we're best doing it on the page as writers. We, we find the business so funny that it's even designed to make writers pitch idea. Like what a, like what a ludicrous uh, process as like, we're very introverted <laughs> and shy and right. I'm not saying all writers, but Scott and I are, and I'm, and I'm sure a lot of writers share the social anxiety that we have and, and, um, and yet you're expected to go into these rooms and perform as if you're like Daniel day Lewis or something selling right. them um, uh, an oil pipeline. It's just like, uh, it's not, uh, it, it's, it's almost counterintuitive. Oh, to totally. And that's why you see not to name any names and I won't, but why you see a whole lot of people who always have their names on really terrible things and they keep getting work sure. uh, is because I, in um, people, I, I, you know, in the blogging days, I'd always get like, how's this person? Why are they failing upwards? I'm like, I can guarantee you every single one of them. If I ask anybody in the business, they'll say they're great in a room great that they can room. pitch their ideas and, and make it sound incredible. And then, and some, a lot of these people too, well, they'll turn in a great draft and then just the process will chew it, chew it up and make it something different. Um, 
Uh, but there are a few people that I'm thinking specifically, and one of them might be nominated for an Oscar this year that I would be, (laughs) that I'd be like, well, that that's a person that, uh, is either riding a coattail and on somebody else's work or they're just, just incredible pitchers and they can get their, their shit, you know, get through. I I really wish like the, the movie business is the hardest thing to change. Like it just doesn't change. Like, so like how long did it take for people to be like, Harvey Weinstein's a bad character. You know what I mean? Like that's happening for so many. It's just like the, the movie business does not change quickly, but that is the, this idea of writers pitching is, is something that we wish would, would change. Cause it's just, you're, it feels like you're, um, that you're creating a barrier to really great, um, uh, writing voices that maybe uh, are just terrible in a room. And it's right. like, who cares? Why should that even matter? Are we about out of things to say about on writing? Is there something <laughs> uh, anyone else here wants to, uh, you know, bring up in relation to this book? I think just maybe, um, you know, from the standpoint of anyone listening, that is uh, either a writer or a creative pursuit, like the biggest takeaway or inspiration that I think strikes me personally is being able to write in your own voice or just be your own person. Like King, yes. King talks about um, like John Steinbeck uh, as example, like using uh, a more simple vocabulary than other authors and saying that's good. That's a good thing. Like you don't need to have, um, you know, the, the best vocabulary in the world as long as you're writing honestly or you're being honest. And I, I do extend that outside of like only being a writer. It's like, as long as you live honestly, I think that's the best thing you can do and be your own person. And so I just find this book endlessly inspirational, um, not just from the craft perspective, but from a life philosophy standpoint. And certainly the, you know, the last section where he talks about his accident and, and trying to get back on the horse to, to write is massively inspiring too, because you can face something that is um, potentially life ending but have that resurgence of, of energy, but it takes like one day after another and you just focus on like the small steps rather than looking at kind of, you know, the end all be all goal. And I think mm. it's um, mm. at least for me, like a very healthy life philosophy that I try to try to um, appropriate as much as I can. Mm. Right. On. Yep. There's also, you know, something I'd also like to add on to that is something you mentioned about life experience as well. And I think that is such a big takeaway, not only from this book, but also when you talk to anybody who's had any success as a writer, like that's something, if that's what you're interested in, it's real easy, especially, you know, when I was coming of age, this is the age of Tarantino and indie cinema. And most friends were trying to just write like Tarantino in terms (laughs) of, um, you know, the, the using yeah. movie language as the overall language, right? Where, you know what I mean? Where it's yeah. uh, the writing with a knowledge of how movies work, but not how real life works. And yeah. that's why I think a lot of people miss the boat um, in yeah. that era. Uh, and something that, you know, cause I, I was very much into collecting uh, as a, as a kid, I still collect, but like I now, if I'm going to spend money on a big ticket item, I'm not buying a, a an $800, you know, hot toys figure, you know, a DeLorean or something I'm buying, you know, I'm buying a trip, you know, I'm going, I'm going places, I'm traveling with friends and loved ones. And, you know, that, that's, that's where, where, you know, my priorities have been. And, and I, I, I can't, you know, say definitively that that's, you know, improved my creative writing, but it sure hasn't hurt it. And I feel like, uh, um, that one of the big takeaways from King here is, is just, 
you know, not, you know, is just have those experiences. And I think that's the reason why his character work is so strong and why the best movies that are adapted out of his stuff focus on those characters um, is because he, you know, he just knows people. He pays attention to the people around him and he sees, he sees how people really talk and he's able to, you know, he, he dresses it up in authorly bullshit from time to time, but for the most part, you know, he, his work has a very, um, authentic and rustic feel to it because he actually cares about listening and taking in and retaining how the world works around them. And, yeah. uh, yeah. that's, you know, that's crucial because if the character, you get the characters right, then you don't have to have the, the one in a million brilliant, uh, uh, plot idea. You know, yeah. you don't have to have that. That's, thing. That's yeah. so well, that's so well said. And, and it's, it's easy to, to, to use your example, Tarantino, to, to emulate something that somebody else has kind of done and exploded on the scene with and watch that and kind of attempt to do your version. But um, when Tarantino did it, it was coming from a very personal place. And when you read uh, his recent book, I don't know if you guys have checked out Cinema Speculation yet, mm-hmm. but it's so clear. It's actually maybe a good, in a weird way, a good companion piece to something like on writing because right. it, it also chronicles uh the artist's evolution of um, taste and interest and in, in their their medium that they are masters of, and it and it's clear to see how personal something like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction was to him. It wasn't it wasn't just emulation. It was um, it, it was deeper than that. Um, and and it's just such great wisdom from uh, from Stephen King in this book. Wow. There's lots of great takeaways from this thing. I, you know, this is one that I, we, we have a reputation for pushing revival on the show. Um, uh, I would love it if the second place, uh, King cast recommends book would be on writing. Cause it's just one that like revival, <laughs> you read that one, you have to prepare everybody. You're going to be probably in a not great mood when you finish it, uh, by design. Uh, it has a, a very, uh, downer ending and, but on writing is like the opposite of that. Right. So on writing is the one that's going to creatively fulfill you and energize you and make you just, you know, excited about the art of writing, you know? And I, I, so I, I really hope that uh, if anybody listening to this hasn't picked it up and read it, that there's the, your excuse to do it. I should probably revisit it. I know they've done additions um, past when I've read it last that actually have contributions from uh, Joe, Hill and uh, Owen King as well. And I haven't read any of that. So I'm very curious about that stuff. Oh, interesting. It, they, they contributed to um, future editions of on writing. Yeah. There's like a second oh, or wow. third edition that has uh, yeah. the, I that guess has I'm 2020 going, edition. I guess I'm going oh, to tonight. That's yeah. exciting. Haven't seen that yet. Well, there you go. I don't know. It could, for all I know, it's a paragraph, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, but it's, it's worth revisiting anyway. So yeah, uh, last time I read it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would like to send you gentlemen out here with, uh, or out of here with a, uh, a little Easter egg, uh, for this book, you know, as Vespi correctly, uh, mentioned earlier, uh, there's a, there's a portion in here about Stephen King's babysitter, Eula. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, pinning him down and farting directly in his face. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> very troubling. Very troubling. But just recently, and not recently when we aired this episode, but <laughs> like recently in our recording schedule, we did uh, The Monkey with Stephen Graham Jones. You know that short mm-hmm. story from The Skeleton Crew? Yeah. Guess what? One of the monkey's first victims 
is a babysitter named Eula. <laughs> Wow. Something for all of us to think about, right? Wow. If you, if getting you his fart revenge all directly, if you pin Stephen King down and fart in his face, you might show up in one of his greatest short stories. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you got to weigh that again. Like, if this is a good or a bad thing, that's all hmm. I'm saying. So what were you saying, uh, Mr. Wampler, is that we need to launch Operation Fart on Stephen King uh, <laughs> if we want to be immortalized uh, in, in a future Stephen King book. Yeah. <laughs> That's of course what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> Gentlemen, right, nobody, uh, we, we are thrilled that you were here today and we had this conversation. Tell people where they can find both of y'all and uh, where they can see 65, y'all's latest venture. This is your time to uh, self-promote. Go crazy. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, we um, so 65, that'll be in theaters uh, worldwide um, March 10th. Uh, so please see it on the biggest screen possible. It's a, it's a movie that we certainly made for, for an audience to be all together. Um, and then we're on uh, social media at Beck and woods, and, and that's where you can find us. And we would like to encourage you to listen to the episode with Ryan Johnson on, on writing. Cause sure. <laughs> things to say than we did, but, uh, we enjoyed it nonetheless. Thank you guys so much for having us. two completely different conversations. Both of them delightful in their own right. And uh, we are we are very thankful y'all were here today and, and we do hope to have you back. Yeah, Let, let's go ahead and pencil in Dance Macabre for the Boogeyman release. That sounds great. And then let's I got to get reading on that motherfucker. Let's yeah. just do a whole thing on Cheesecake Factory if we can. as Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. Bonus well, we'll get you in just waiting to happen. You can do a commentary. We'll do thinner. And all we'll do is talk about Cheesecake Factory menu as we're watching thinner. <laughs> Love That's it. not a bad idea. <laughs> what if we ad- what if we collectively adapted the cheesecake factory menu as a horror script Great idea. <laughs> we're down See yeah what i'm saying <laughs> yeah it's fucking money 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 dollar bills y'all yeah all right i'll start waking up at 8 a.m every morning and uh <laughs> writing the various chapters you guys will have to handle the seafood chapters i don't fuck with seafood but but uh but I'll, i got the pasta and the cheesecake stuff done all right so i've got the glam burger well done <laughs> gentlemen thank you for being here today this was Truly great. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. It's been great. Many thanks to Brian Woods and Scott Beck. Uh, very happy to have those gentlemen on the show and yes. to once again take a look at on writing. Um, yeah, I had a blast with those guys and, and uh, I wish them well with their movie. I still have not seen it yet at the time of this recording. So maybe it's. Uh, yes. You know, uh, I don't I. I can't vouch for for whether it's any good or not. But, you know, again, you can't go wrong with Adam Driver fighting dinosaurs I'm rooting so. for it. It's a it's a movie about Adam Driver fighting dinosaurs with machine guns, futuristic machine guns. I will. Right. Yeah. It's also landing in theaters this weekend with Scream 6. So these two titans are going to go head to head for the box office glory. I know. It's a it's a veritable smorgasbord of uh, awesome, nerdy, geeky, yes, genre nerd shit this weekend. So it is indeed. And I think it might be safe to say that next week's guest might tie into Scream 6 in some way. Would that Mm. be a nice a nice hint? I was I was trying to do it subtly, but Mm. you came out and just straight out said it. And I, yeah, I and I did. like that. I like this approach. Yeah, I did. It's yeah. direct. It's bold. Yeah. It's especially bold since we're not recording with with these potential guests until uh, later this week. So yeah, that's true. So 
we are making promises that maybe we can't keep, but as of right now, we're locked in, and the topic will be the running man, which will be yes, yet another uh, excuse to delve into the goofiness of the Schwarzenegger uh, adaptation, and uh, we're all here for that. Yeah, make sure you're all caught up in your Scream 6 knowledge before you listen to next Wednesday's show. I think we will have probably both seen it by then and um yeah it might get into spoiler shit i don't know never we haven't, know we haven't really discussed it yet so fuck i don't know y'all how do you even <laughs> record an outro Who's yeah so what is an these? outro i don't, I don't know i don't know I don't well, know. I, we've already done our jobs. We we said that the title next week is The Running Man for anybody that wants mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. have this week to get caught up, either read the Bachman uh, novel or watch the uh, the Schwarzenegger film. So that is yeah. the, that is our due diligence. We've done that part. Yes. And this Friday on the KingCast Patreon, which is, of course, patreon.com backslash the KingCast, which I would urge all of you to sign up to if you want to support the show financially. Please do that. Um, please uh, come on by. We have dozens, if not well over a hundred mm-hmm. bonus. We we must we must have like a hundred and fifty fucking bonus episodes so many. over there. Yeah, um, come over. Dive through our back end. You know, we the <laughs> Kingcast is inviting you to to explore our back end at your leisure and as deeply as you want to. I think that's the message I want to send to our audience. You right, correct, and there's there's nothing more to uh, explore with with that line of thinking, and and uh, certainly mm-hmm. no other deeper and ruder meaning to to those words. And, sure, uh, of course, yeah, yeah. We we make it nice and presentable for you over there. We got discords, baby. We got commentaries. We got lots of good stuff. And uh, yeah, so if you only listen to the main feed, you're only getting half the show. I know I say it every week, but damn, it's true because we give a full ass episode every Friday over at our Patreon. And this Friday will be no different. So go ahead and sign up. It's really fun. We promise good community over there. Vespi is right. Our back end has been carefully maintained. Mm-hmm. It, it would not be objectionable to look at or explore from, from your perspective. And we are willing to allow you into that back end to explore uh, to your heart's desire in exchange for money. Right. Yeah. That's not saying anything about ourselves. That's not, no. you know, throwing down a gauntlet or anything like that. Or although you can throw a gauntlet in there too, if you, if you if you want. You oh, know? you I mean, can throw you can throw a gauntlet into the back end. I'll tell you. Yeah, no, yeah. Abs- absolutely. We've we've even uh, you know cleaned it up a little bit. We bleached it, so it's nice and. We absolutely have to stop talking right now. <laughs> we have to wrap this up. <laughs> Great. So we're next week lose, we're gonna lose. <laughs> 800 people from the fucking <laughs> Patreon in the next 20 minutes if we don't. Um, folks, thank you for listening to this episode. We'll be back next Wednesday and this Friday on the Patreon with a brand new episode. Mm, see you next Wednesday, folks. Adios, Bye. Folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.